I'm Wayne Rubin, and I want to welcome you to the podcast, Hard Yards in Leadership, where we explore the tough leadership challenges experienced by successful leaders along their journey. I hope hearing their stories will help you predict, prepare, and survive the inevitable challenges you will face on your leadership journey. Let's get into it. G'day, everyone. I'm Wayne Rubin, and welcome to this episode of Hard Yards in Leadership. In this episode, uh, we have a guest. His name is JC or Juan Carlos Aragon. JC is a long-term 30-plus year veteran of the global optical industry. He was my colleague. He was my boss um, for a bunch of years. And JC is one of the most experienced and truly kind of wise leaders that that I've ever had the pleasure to, to work with. In this episode, we explore various elements of JC's career, as usual, going all the way back to when JC first found himself in charge of a department, and he was a young optometrist from Costa Rica, suddenly in a giant US multinational with a team of people who were going, who the hell's this guy? And we learn about how he kind of grew from there, suddenly found himself running a chunk of global marketing, um, which was a whole new space for him, and then progressing on through his career dealing with some of the difficult things that happen when you're in these kind of big roles. So we talk about where there were large reductions in force required because companies had to shrink down to um, ensure their long-term viability, dealing with missing budgets and budget cutbacks and all of those things that people get emotive about, dealing with uh, situations like where your product suddenly becomes unsaleable because the licenses run out or there's a regulatory problem, there's a recall all of those sorts of things that we find difficult. JC talks about dealing with boards and dealing with employees and all the time coming back to just a core sense of doing the right thing and um, looking after people. JC is a truly moral-driven, culture-focused leader who has a tremendous amount to share and I think you're going to find his easy style and his way of storytelling um, fantastic to listen to. You're going to learn so much. You're going to enjoy listening to Juan Colos or JC Aragon. So with that, let's jump straight in. Welcome, JC. Hi, Wayne. Uh, nice being here and thanks for the opportunity and nice nice seeing you. <laughs> and for our audience, just to let you know, JC and I uh, have known each other for quite a long time. Uh, JC used to be my boss back in Cooper Vision going back, I guess, uh, close to uh, 15, 17 years now. So, um, it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while and we had a lot of fun. So, JC, this is our opportunity to unpack some elements of your career. And I'm going to start off, if I can, by asking you to go all the way back to when you first found yourself in a leadership role. Can you think of when that was and, and, and tell us about um, what was happening when, you, when someone first said, okay, you're going to be the boss? Yeah, yeah. You have to go back many years. I've been in the, in the vision care business for um, 38 years, almost 39. And, and I ended up here by accident, really, because I, I am an optometrist. I went to optometry school. And my objective was I went to optometry school in Mexico. Mexico City. I am from Costa Rica. So I went from Costa Rica to Mexico City to go to optometry school with the idea of going back home to join an uncle who had a very successful optical practice to join him in his practice. As I was getting ready to leave Mexico 
graduating from optometry school, Baosham Lam, uh, back then a very large company within the vision care optical space, still are, and still a large company, they approached me and said if I would like to join them and work with them as an optometrist, they were looking for someone that was an optometrist that spoke Spanish and spoke English. So I ticked all those three boxes. And so I traveled to um, to Rochester, New York. That's where Bausch & Lomb had their headquarters. I was interviewed by Bausch & Lomb. I was offered a job in October of um, 1984. January 2nd of 1985, I was on a plane from tropical Costa Rica to the dead of winter in Rochester, New York. Didn't even have a coat with me. And I ended up in Rochester. I rented a car. I had never driven over a snowy road. That was an experience in itself. And I joined Bausch and Lomb. And I joined Bausch and Lomb thinking that I would be there for a year. I would make a little bit of money. Uh, and I would go back to Costa Rica a year later and join my uncle in his practice. Well, that was 39 years ago, almost. I never went back to Costa Rica to join my uncle in his business. And I uh, never practiced optometry in Costa Rica or anywhere for that matter. I entered the vision care industry at Bausch & Lomb as an optometrist in what uh, the industry refers to as professional services or professional affairs, which is where we provide technical guidance, clinical guidance to our customers on how to prescribe, how to dispense, how to use our products. So that was my role at, at Bausch & Lomb, first based in Rochester, New York. Then I was sent down to the country of Panama. That's where the Latin American headquarters of Bausch & Lomb were. And I was there for just over a year. The um, political situation was a little bit um, dangerous in Panama. So uh, Bausch & Lomb moved the regional headquarters from Panama to Miami. So I was in Miami for um, for three years, three and a half years, and I was reporting to someone who was based in Rochester, my boss, and he said, hey, JC, uh, we want you to move to Rochester because we want you to be my successor. So that was the first time, Wayne, that I, that I was asked, hey, JC, you have a future in this business, uh, still within the professional affairs role. But instead of being responsible for professional affairs in Latin America, at the very young age of 29, at least now it seems like it, I was given the role of becoming head of uh, international professional affairs for, for Bausch & Lomb, again, at a very young age. Uh, global responsibilities based out of Rochester, the company headquarters. And um, all that went, went very well. Learned a lot. I, I had a team. I managed a team. I thought I wasn't ready to manage a team, but uh, I, I learned how to manage on the run. And uh, most people on my team were more experienced than I was. But still, it, I learned learned a lot. But then I, I said, "Hey, professional affairs. There is a limit." Back then, okay, I, I liked the corporate life. I, I started to enjoy what I was doing. And I said, but I can't, I can't continue to advance my career if I'm so narrowly focused on professional affairs. So I told my boss, different boss then, said, hey, I want to do something else. I want to move into marketing. So they created a role for me in marketing, head of marketing for the Western Hemisphere at Bausch & Lomb. 
And um, that's when I really started to get involved with the business. But interestingly, you know, uh, this was when everyone went to work every day. No, no hybrid, no virtual. Everyone went to the office and, and everyone had a closed office at Baal at, at the headquarters. And everyone had uh, an assistant outside of the office, right? A, back then it was known as a secretary. Now I think it's administrative assistant. And I realized I would go to the office every day in the morning. And I, I would see on the assistant's desk, the Wall Street Journal. Oh, interesting. All of the bosses read the Wall Street Journal. There must be something with the Wall Street Journal. So every afternoon, you know, they would throw away the newspaper and I would pick one up and take it home with me and I would start to read the Wall Street Journal. And then, I, you know, that opened my eyes uh, amazingly. Back then there was no internet. You had to read newspapers, paper being the, the key word. So I would take it home and I would read the Wall Street Journal and I learned a lot about how the business world function just by reading. And that role running professional affairs for, for Bausch and Lam gave me tremendous leadership experiences, a lot of challenges, but um, uh, I, I was involved in getting Bausch and Lam to start their business in China. This was China in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Nothing like what China is today. It was an absolute different world, very involved with the European business, stayed involved with the um, with the Latin American business, with the Canadian business. Anything that was non-U.S., I was responsible for uh, initially professional affairs. And then within the Western Hemisphere, um, it was it was everything from a, from a marketing perspective. So that's how I became a leader. I don't remember when I woke up and I said to myself, I am a leader as of today. It, it just gradually happened. I do remember when I replaced my first boss as head of professional affairs, uh, I met with my new team. I remember the conversation. I told them, listen, I'm not ready for this. So be patient. I will learn. But this is the first time I've led a team of people was about five or six people. They probably were asking themselves, why would JC be promoted to this role? You know, no one yeah. really knows who he is. And he's from Costa Rica. You know, and this, you know, this is the U.S. This is the largest country in the world. And we have this Costa Rican now as our boss. So, uh, and I, you know, it was a great team. And I still keep in touch with, with them after all these years. And, and then again, I moved to marketing. And, and then I, I left Bausch & Lomb because I wanted to leave um, Rochester for, too many winters, but it was a great experience. Uh, that was my first leadership responsibility. Leadership as defined as managing people versus just managing a function where I did not have a team of people reporting directly into me. And JC, as you think back to those early years when you were kind of learning it like on the run, do you remember any particular challenges that you had that really kind of tested you and and where you kind of had to dig deep and work through how I'm going to steer through this situation? I think, you know, managing people, you know, I've always said that I've, I am the chief psychology officer of the company because ultimately we are psychologists, aren't we? We need to manage complex human beings and not just managing them from, from eight to five or nine to six. We we manage the human being that has a life, that has a family, that has issues, that have problems that go through, you know, tragedy, 
situation, strategic situation. So you know, managing people, getting to know people, uh, understanding people in, in different cultures, because I, I've, you know, when, when I had my global responsibility, international responsibility at Baoshenlam, I dealt with people from around the world. And, you know, managing people must be different depending on which culture these people come from, not just from a, from a linguistic point of view, but it's, you know, what their culture is like. So, yeah, so, so I think that, that was the biggest challenge, Wayne, is, is getting to know people, understanding that each person was and still is a universe with all of the complexities that are involved. And then when you, when you run a business that, you know, covers multiple geographies, you're basically working 24-7, aren't you? And when you and I worked together, you know, I was based in Northern California. You were based in, in Sydney, you know, and I had a responsibility for all of Asia and I had responsibility for Latin America. Uh, so my, my day started in the morning, U.S. time, and, and then afternoon, my time, it was uh, morning in, in Asia, Japan and you know, China and, of course, um, Apoch were up, so and I would stay working until 11, 12, you know, midnight. And and uh, uh, I have this reputation that I don't sleep, and I still don't sleep, and that's that's the reason why. So uh, an average day was not eight hours, nine hours. It was you know twice that. So that's a challenge, and you get used to it. I think it it also creates issues at home. And as I look back at my career, you know, my I, my first marriage which ended after 15 years, I think came to an end to a large extent because I was very busy managing the business. And back then it was, you know, we didn't have these tools that we have today. Long distance phone calls, three minutes was like a hundred dollars. So you would travel and you could barely keep up with your work, much less keeping up with things back home. So those are challenges, you know, it's not balancing work and, and personal life. It's It's trying to find yeah, you can't balance them. It's it's impossible. But how do you minimize uh, the risk to your personal life based on what you need to do in your in your professional life? So those are things that I think I've learned over the years, which um, were definitely um, you know challenges. And you know, I get lots of lots of messages from f- folks that listen to the show who struggle with exactly that. And the, and a lot of people kind of think you know, this is just a me problem, but the simple reality is for all of us that start taking on big responsibility, and particularly when it becomes geographically diverse, the challenge of balancing, where do I create those barriers in my work time so that I have enough for personal time? There's no perfect answer, is there? There's not. There's not. And anyone that pretends that there is will very, very quickly realize there is not. Now, I think the world has changed and probably COVID changed certain things about what is expected going to the office every single day was the expectation before COVID. I think now we've somewhat landed in a hybrid model where you come to work two, three times a week to the office where you see other people, but you work from home two days a week. And I think that based here in the US, I'm not sure what it is in Australia, but in the US, I think that's that's where companies have landed, you know. Yeah, you know, at the company that I work at currently, I just started at Visioneering Technologies here in Atlanta. Employees can can work from home Monday and Friday. Work from home. It's not just stay home. They can work from home. 
but the expectation is that they come to the office Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So I think this helps in, in balancing professional life with, with personal life, even for those that don't travel. The fact that they can spend two days a week at home, albeit working, allows them to sneak out a little bit and say hi to the kids and say hi to the wife or to the husband, which, which you know, was not, not the case back then. And JC, moving through, like looking at kind of like the, the, the mid part of your career, I mean, I know you, you had big roles in big companies and, and through those years, I guess there were different things that kind of, you know, storm clouds that came along, right? We had times that we had to, you know, cut back budgets and deal with emotive people, times we had to cut back workforces and steer organisations that were barely holding together. Share with us some of some of the the challenging years that and, and the challenging situations because so many people that I talk to today are dealing with some element of challenge and kind of going, how do I do this? And you've been through so much. Yeah, I've been through several of those. One with you, by the way, when when I moved to run the HF Act business for for Cooper Vision, this was two thousand and eight. This was when the um, the the Great Recession or whatever it was called. Yeah, the Great Recession hit two thousand eight two thousand nine. The, the the housing boom in the U.S. you know exploded and the consequences were felt around the world and you know at at Cooper Vision we we struggled and we had to execute a reduction in force and that included the Asia Pac region so we let unfortunately many people go we closed down a manufacturing facility in in Adelaide that was a painful experience and these are things that you have to do the long term health of the company is the priority now. There's ways in which you can do it, and you have to be, you know, very cognizant and sensitive of the impact that it has on on people. And losing a job is one of the biggest problems and the biggest, you know, sad events in someone's life. You know, losing a loved one, going through a divorce, or, or losing your job; those are considered as the the biggest challenges that we go through through life, right? And so that was difficult, but. But, you know, companies handle things in different ways, uh, Wayne, and the company culture, which for me is extremely important, defines to a large extent how you're going to execute these reduction in force uh, when, when needed. And I've worked with Swiss companies, and I've worked with, with American companies, and now I'm working with a U.S.-based company that is listed in Australia. And the Australia Stock Exchange. Now, I just joined, so my current company is too new to reach any conclusions. But a you know, Bausch and Lomb was an American company, and Bausch and Lomb looked at things from a very short-term perspective, and that was the way the corporate world was back in the 1980s and 90s. The quarter was all that mattered. You know, hit your number in the quarter, and then we'll worry about the other quarter next quarter. That was not just Bausch and Lomb. That was the corporate world back then. Then I, I went from Bausch and Lomb to Siba Vision, which was part of Siba Gaiyi, then Novartis. Uh, so that is now, well, actually, that business now is Alcon, but again, became Novartis, a Swiss company. And Swiss, the, the, in their culture, they really look at things from a long-term perspective. And it was quite a change for me to go from Bausch and Lomb, where the end of the quarter was it. To see a vision where they really had long-term strategic plans and they stuck to them, and uh, again, very Swiss, and that was a, a fresh, a, a, a um, breath of, of fresh air 
And it was nice, but it took me some time to adapt to that because you, I would look around, well, it's the end of the quarter and no one's bothering me. Is it that they don't care? They do care, but they don't want you to do stupid things to make the number at any cost. Now that's changed. I think all companies today, most companies today is after the, um, you know, the 2000 Enron um, scandal. Most companies today uh, look at things from a longer term perspective, both um, American and European and Japanese and Australian You know, companies are much more responsible from that perspective today. But the culture defines to a large extent how you manage the business in the good times and in the bad times. At Cooper Vision, when you remember that that reduction in force, I think, was handled quite well. And the closure of the of the manufacturing facility in Adelaide, Australia, was handled well. Not easy, but I think it was handled well. And all that helps, you know, as, as you go through life and you go through your career and you have that experience behind you, you can definitely learn from those past events to, um, you know, you can always do things better. And I think uh, that's been the case in, in my career. And, you know, every whatever it is, every 10 years, more or less, we go through a um, through a recession with the implications. And uh, so you have to be, be ready for it. And hopefully you've managed the business that when you do need to go through such a restructuring, you could do it in a way that it mitigates the impact on people and on communities, both people and communities. And JC, in the mix of all of that, there's also the challenge that we face. You know, we, we all we all hope for a career where we hit our numbers every quarter and hit our numbers every year and everyone kind of celebrates and pats us on the back. Younger leaders find it very difficult, or many of them, when they face the harsh reality, sometimes under economic circumstances and other things, of not hitting your numbers and having to continue to kind of front up and motivate a team and do all those sorts of things when we're not hitting our numbers. What's your perspective on that? Because, you know, I'm sure you've had had your share of good times and bad, right? No, that's not true. I've always hit my numbers, Wayne. <laughs> Joking aside. <laughs> this isn't an interview. <laughs> <laughs> I've always hit my numbers. No, obviously, we've, we've missed quarters and we've missed years. And there needs to be reasons for why one misses his or her targets and, and um, really starts with the target setting process, I would argue. As you learn a business and you understand the factors, both external and internal, that affect your ability to achieve certain targets, you'll you'll find the point where you agree with your company, with your bosses, with management. Yeah, these are reasonable targets. These I can commit to. I will sign the bottom line on, on these targets. Now, occasionally, companies, for whatever reason, give their teams targets that they know from the get-go are simply unrealistic. I've had a few of those in my life. And it's difficult to, as you try to trickle those targets down to your own team, you know, how do you face the team and tell them, hey, listen, this is what we have to do. I don't believe in these targets, but this is what we have to do. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I had to deal with that situation maybe twice in my life where I was given a set of targets that I knew from the beginning were not going to achieve these. So setting that to the side, most of the targets that I've dealt with have been realistic, have been achievable. The proper resources were allocated for, for me to working with the team to achieve those targets. Obviously it's, it's great when you achieve your targets, 
There are some inconsistencies when for certain members of the team, targets are evaluated on an annual perspective, whereas others, it's on a quarterly basis. So that creates an issue. And I really encourage companies try to align the, the timing of those targets, because if, if you pay your sales commissions on a quarterly basis, but management is compensated on an annual basis, there is a little bit of a, of a disconnect there. Uh, and you're no longer that concerned about the quarter if you're management, because you get paid annually your bonus. But obviously the sales team, they get paid quarterly. So how do you handle that? You know, how do you get them to achieve their targets? Although you could skip a quarter, if you will, and make it up the following quarter. So again, communication. You know, I've always said over communicate, under coordinate, make sure that the team understands that. And so far, I think it's it's worked okay. You know, it's it's not easy, it's not perfect, but it but it's worked okay. You're listening to Hard Yards in Leadership where leaders share the stories of their hardest yards in their leadership journeys. I hope every leader who hears these stories recognizes that the things that they find hard are the same things that the rest of us leaders find hard too. It's my dream that every leader finds the joy in leading. It will help you be a happier person, a better leader for your business, and a better leader for those that you lead. If you like the show, please subscribe, drop us a review, and most importantly, share to others who may benefit from it too. Now back to the show. I'm going to haul you back because you said there was a couple of years that, that the targets from the very beginning you said were probably unachievable and you said, I'm going to set those aside. Let's jump back into those ones that we set aside. How do you deal with that? Because that's, I guess, if I kind of think about folks that I engage with in, in my world now, I talk to a lot of people who are currently living that exact life, living with this situation where it's like the, the company set a target and from the very beginning, it's like, that's not going to happen. And I hear people really stress a lot about that and 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 it causes an enormous amount of angst. What? How do you deal with that? Because it, it is tough, right? It's, it's some of the real hard yards. It, it is tough, but it's also credibility. You know, I, I've worked with people that are never happy with a budget, with a target. They complain about it. It's the end of the world. Uh, this is not, we're not going to achieve it. We're, our team is going to be, you know, not, not motivated. We're going to lose talent. In most cases, they achieve the targets. In most cases, they find ways, we find ways of achieving the targets. Now, there are situations in which the macroeconomic, macro political environment just you know, creates so many obstacles, though no matter what we do, we can't achieve them. But most companies under those circumstances, you know, give you a certain latitude to offset what you are missing because of circumstances beyond your control. Okay. Or, you know, you, you, you lose a regulatory license somewhere, or there's a product recall that you're not responsible for. Or again, the economy goes downhill. So, all bets are off. The challenge, I think, and I think this is the, the essence of your question, when none of that happens, you know, everything is going well, the economy is going well, you have all the products, you have all the regulatory licenses, you have your team, and still you're giving a target that you cannot achieve. What I've done occasionally, and, and it's created some issues for me, that target ends with me. So what I give to my team 
does not add up to my target. Uh, and in, in doing so, I don't lose their commitment. I don't lose their motivation. And they mm-hmm. tend to deliver more yeah. because there, there's an upside payment for them, both commissions and bonuses. And it gradually, it starts to close the gap between what they are delivering and what my objective is, which I did not share that objective, that target with the team. Not always. It doesn't close the gap always. But it brings it close to the point where at least a certain percentage of bonuses and commissions are paid. But again, it's been a couple of times in my career where we really missed because I did not agree with a target uh, that the company gave me. I, I think companies spend too much time on the budget process, uh, the budget dialogue, as they call it. It's really a monologue. You know, just tell me what you want to do and I'll do it. Right? Don't have me present three, four times. At the end of the day, you're going to tell me what to do, no matter what I tell you that I can do. Just tell me now what I'm going to do and what you want me to do, and I'll, I'll try to do it. But let's not waste too much time on this dialogue, if you will, if um, you're going to tell me what to do at the end of the day. And yeah, some companies do one? that more than others, but all companies do it. Yeah, I was just going to say, wouldn't it be wonderful if, because uh, companies aren't things, aren't they? It's it's folks in, in certain roles who uh, insist that we go through the charade, which is a hard yard in itself. Companies are not democracy. A company is not a democracy. But just imagine what it'd be like if if a company was was run under the principles of a, of a, of a democracy. It would not last one year. Yeah. I think that's why business people are terrible politicians because uh, they, they try to manage politics uh, like they manage a business. I'm not going to mention any names right now, but uh, you can think of a few, I think. One or two come to mind. Uh, several come to mind, some in your country, some in mine. So uh, it's, it's, it's a different world. A, a business is not a democracy, but it's, it's, it's always fun. And if you're no longer having fun with, with what you're doing, find something else to do because life's too short. And if you're miserable at work, you're not having fun, you're not going to do a good job. Uh, you'll lose the passion. You can't motivate people. You can't hire good people. Uh, because people see right through you. They see that you're not committed. You're not motivated. You're not engaged. You're not going to attract good talent. You have to be. So uh, another recommendation for, for your listeners. And these recommendations are incredibly powerful because, you know, you've uh, you've proven their value over multiple companies, over multiple geographies and over, over multiple years, right? So um, so that, that sense of recognition that, you know, we're always going to get through the tough stuff and, and just find the joy in what you do, I think is that's very much your brand, right? And, 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 you know, you've seen a tremendous amount of success in business by, you know, by carrying and role modeling that. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. Uh, appreciate the comment. And, and um, yeah, we, it's, it's a responsibility. It's a job. We get paid for it. We, we have shareholders, we have stakeholders, we have employees and, so, so no, that, that I, that I get, but yeah, I think we're very fortunate. I think you're, you're in that same classification that we can get up in the morning and we do things that we like to do and we get paid for it. Not, not everyone has that, that luxury in life, but um, in management, I think most people that listen to this are probably in management or yes. want to get into management. Yeah, find something that makes you happy. You can have fun with. I think that's been the case throughout my 
39-year career. Only four companies, by the way, and the fourth one is just three weeks old. So three companies for 38 years, so it's not not that many changes, although I had multiple jobs within these companies. Every three or four years, I would do something different, but within the same organization. And that, that kept me happy, you know, changing things, doing things different, not believing that you're not ready for that next role. Yeah. Let me ask you about bosses, because we always have a boss. And not every boss that we have turns out to be our ideal boss. And I don't want you to name any names here, but... Oh, come on. Let me name some names. Let me name some names. You know, you know <laughs> well, some of them. I, I, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> but I'm sure at different times you've, you, you've had bosses that, that you didn't necessarily see eye to eye with. And I know, again, a lot of people find that something that they kind of burn up over. And, and, and what's your advice in, in, in that situation? How have you dealt with having a boss that you didn't necessarily see eye to eye with? Oh, that's not a problem. Not, not seeing eye to eye with a boss is, is not a problem. Sooner or later, you reach an agreement and, and whatever that is. And, and if, if things are done the way your, your boss determines, yeah, well, he's the boss. That's why he gets paid more than you do. And that's his job. But my problem has been with bosses that I simply do not respect. Yeah. And not respect based on not agreeing with them, but not respect based on their ethics, their morality, uh, things that I, I've seen bosses do that I would never do. And, and once you lose that respect, it's very difficult to work with, yeah. with someone as a boss or as a colleague. It's very difficult. So, you know, I've, I've had bosses that I simply have not, um, not always gotten along well with, you know, but again, that's, not everyone's a friend. We're not here to make friends. Now, I could argue that most of my friends in life I've made through my years in industry and the profession of optometry. Not all of them end up being friends, but uh, as long as I respect them and they respect me and they respect people, when I see them mistreating people, you know, I don't care how good you are in what you do. If you're a jerk, you know, jerks are not allowed in my world. Yeah. yeah. So go away. You know, I, because sooner or later, the culture, I go back to the culture word. If you let the wrong people in your organization, they damage the culture. Yes. Uh, and sometimes you have control over those people. Sometimes you don't, at least not, not the directly, but sooner or later, those leave the company. The culture is stronger than the jerk, if you will. And I've seen that a lot. So, but I've been very lucky, Wayne, over these 39 years in, in the business, I've had, with a couple of exceptions that I'm not going to name, people that I liked, that I worked well with, that I respected, that I've learned a lot from. So I, I really cannot complain from, from that perspective. And how did you get through the years when you had someone who you didn't respect in that role? Well, um, that relationship ended. Uh, quickly, you know, I can remember one. I'm not going to name the company, but uh, uh, the person was really, I'll put it mildly, he was he was corrupt, a corrupt individual. That ended up being reported, uh, and he ended up leaving the company. It took longer than I would have liked, but but it happened. And then I, I had a boss who was not really engaged, was not really committed, and we would you know take him out to visit customers, and the customers would would realize. 
why did you bring this guy over here? He's not adding any value. Clearly, he's not paying attention. He doesn't want to be here. You're better off you know, keeping him in the office. Just don't bring him out. Yes. Um, and that, that relationship lasted a little bit longer. But what I did is precisely that. I never brought him out again. Never had him travel with, with me again because he would, instead of adding value, he would, he would create problems for, for me. But he also left. So, so um, the good bosses stay and the, the bad bosses go sooner or later. But no, I've been, I've been very fortunate. Overall, it's, it's been good. Different bosses, different cultures. You know, you talk about bosses that are very much focused on certain things, certain areas of expertise, certain geographies. Um, you know, as you, you become, you try to become an international company, a global company, you realize that not all bosses work well within a company that is expanding outside of your domestic home market. That's very important in today's world. You know, the, the evolution to globalization is something that not every company, not every executive, every manager can, can manage um, appropriately. So I've had to, some issues with that. Them understanding that things in different countries are done differently. It's a changing world, fortunately. Yeah. And JC, perhaps my, my last kind of like hard yard exploration for our chat is I'm conscious you've worked in uh, predominantly regulated uh, industries and of course, basically in vision. And when you work in vision, sometimes whether it's a problem in manufacturing or a problem with regulatory or whatever it might be, sometimes something that's way bigger than you says you have to do a recall or you have to stop selling a particular product or, or whatever. And, you know, that's a challenge for everyone. Obviously, you have to do the right thing and that's that becomes the guiding principle. But during those times, a lot of people have a lot of angst and, you know, what's going to happen and the competitors are going to steal our space and, and all of those sorts of things. You've been through that a few times. You want to share with the listeners kind of how you steer an organization through and keep everyone kind of focused on that North Star? Okay. Doing what is right comes down to that. Okay. There's no compromise. We cannot look in the opposite direction. If a product needs to be recalled, we have to recall it. If we have to withdraw a product from a market because the license was not renewed for whatever reason or was not obtained appropriately, we have to stop selling that product, we'll do it. So focus first on doing what is right. And then, you know, quantify the, the implications. Quantify the implications both as it relates to your customer you're no longer going to supply a certain product to your customer. Can you offer them an option, a plan B? Do you have another product in your portfolio that you can offer? And if the answer is no, does one of your competitors have a product that you can offer them? But manage the relationship, not the transaction. Okay, you're going to lose business, but don't lose a customer. And if you offer the customer an alternative even if that product is not manufactured by your company, you have a customer for life and that product will come back. You'll regain that business and the customer will be as loyal as, as ever. And then the impact on employees. You know, you lose a license, you recall a product. Uh, it has an impact on, on the manufacturing organization. Do what is right. You know, treat employees with respect. If, if you need to let them go, either permanently or, or for a period of time, 
you know, make sure that you, you do as much as you can as a company to offer them, you know, a, a severance package, a, a temporary package, something that keeps them whole until they can come back or until they can find another job. Fortunately, the companies that I worked with from, from that perspective have always, always kept employees as their number one priority. Uh, I don't think they're called employees anymore. Are they called associates or uh, something like that? But the employees, uh, it's tough to keep up with all the terminology that one needs to use today in this politically correct world when I'm, I'm from a different generation. So, yeah, so, so I think dealing with people, dealing with your customers, communicating, 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 you know, in front of people, reaching out to people. There's nothing worse than uncertainty. Don't lie. And share as much as you can, as quickly as you can. Give employees the tools so if they need to leave the company, they can start looking for a job as quickly as possible. Let your customers know as quickly as possible. Product ABC is not coming back. So this is what I can offer you from my company or from this other company. But let them know as quickly as possible. Silence does not work because people start to think what's going on. So that's that's my recommendation and deal with it, you know, up front. Don't, don't hide anything. Yeah, it's great wisdom. I remember at one stage back when I was running the Australian business for Cooper Vision, I think we had a, I won't go into brand names and those things, but we had a particular brand that, that was uh, that was very well liked and and, uh, and had great patient reputation. And we had some manufacturing challenges with, with volume. And so we, were, we had some extended out of stocks. And, um, and I remember that for our customers, we ended up recommending that the patients wearing that product who couldn't get it, that, that they temporarily fit them with a competitor lens because it had the most similar characteristics. And a lot of people in our, in our business like thought that, that we'd gone completely crazy. But the simple reality was as we came out of that phase, all of our customers came back and they came back even stronger because they said, you guys, you guys helped us deal with our need to look after our customers and, you know, we just so respect the way that you did that. And it was just one of those simple things at the time. It's like, well, we couldn't get the sale. So, you know, like look after the customer. Look after the customer and the customer won't, won't forget. Yeah, exactly. They, they, they won't forget. And, and you move from company to company again. And, and if you stay within the same industry, uh, again, although your obligation is to look after the interest of the company that you're currently employed with, which is what I've always done. But if you treat your customers well, as you leave a specific company and join another company within that same space, those customers will follow you. They will remember that because you, you're, you're not only building the company's brand, you're building your own brand. And you might leave the company's brand behind when you change jobs, but your brand comes along with you. And that is extremely valuable, extremely powerful. And that is your responsibility to manage your own brand. So, uh, and I've seen that recently in my new job, you know, <laughs> I, a, a lot of my customers from over the years are, hey, JC, let's do business. Sure, let's talk, let's do business. Because they, they know us and they know that we treated them well. And, and so that's, that's nice. It's not only is it good for business, but it's nice on a personal level to know that your, your customers want to follow you around. So I like that. So, JC, you've uh, you've listened to the podcast, but my my concluding question is always the same to, to to different guests, and and it goes a little bit like this. So, um, 
So you've just moved into your new office, right? So you've got your, your desk and you look up and there's a there's a wall or whatever across from you. And I'm going to give you a, a virtual a tin of paint and a paintbrush and you get to write some or paint some words up on, the, on that wall that, that you they're going to be there. You get to see them every every day when you sit at your desk and, and look up. What words do you write? Well, in this case, and I'll be very, very to the point because it is a very different type of setting, different type of company. But, you know, as a publicly traded company, this is brand new experience for me. I am dealing a lot more with shareholders, existing shareholders, and looking for new shareholders. So whereas in the past, I've managed the business more looking at the company from an internal perspective and customers from an external perspective, I have now an added level of complexity, which are the shareholders. And so I am selling the company, if you will, day in, day out to those shareholders. So that's number one, and because the business does not exist if our shareholders go away. So that's number one. Number two is, you know, the customers. What are we doing? And, you know, the company that I'm currently working with, Visionary Technologies, competes in the myopia management space. Myopia management, you know what it is, Wayne, but your your audience maybe not. There is a global epidemic of myopia. Children, six, seven, eight years of age, are developing myopia, nearsightedness, at a very, very young age. If nothing is done as that myopia progresses, the prevalence of serious eye disease goes up dramatically. So now we have products, we have treatments that slow down the progression of myopia in children. Doesn't stop it completely, doesn't cure it, but it slows it down so it doesn't reach those thresholds that causes long-term ocular disease. So every day when I come to work or when I'm at home, I know that I am here to make sure that we protect the vision of children through our products, through our services. So there is a mission. There's a reason why I am here. There's a real purpose. Yeah. There's a purpose. We are contributing to the management of the pediatric myopia epidemic. Uh, and that is that is beautiful. If you can go to work and you're doing something good and you're making money at the same time, Hey, fantastic. So, so that's on, on the list of, of things that I, that I think about every day, day in, day out. And just, you know, managing the business, you know, business is, is a lot of, you know, pushing and pulling and, and removing obstacles and management. You are basically paid to allocate resources, to build a team, to remove obstacles, to make life easier for your team and to make sure that they spend most of their time doing what they are paid to do. And, you know, I am here to resolve problems. You are there to execute the strategies. So again, I've been in this company for three weeks. So I'm just starting to learn what those obstacles are, what those needs are. But that's different world, different company, but basically the same philosophical principles that have governed what I've done, different roles, different companies over the years. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Jesse, it's been an absolute pleasure. You have a tremendous amount of wisdom to share, and I'm sure our listeners get a tremendous amount um, from listening to that. And, and it's always a, a joy to 
joy to catch up and, 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 and hear from you. So thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks for the invitation, Wayne. And again, we go back a long time and nice to see you at least virtually and uh, let's keep in touch. Thanks for listening to another incredible episode where successful leaders share their hardest yards. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to let people know by sharing the episode around and rating and reviewing the podcast on the platform you listen on. Feel free to join our online community on LinkedIn. You can find the link in our show notes. I look forward to seeing you next week. Meanwhile, keep learning, find the joy in what you do, and keep believing in yourself as a leader.